the book of Genesis, and we're going to be in chapter 22 today, Genesis 22, as we continue our study of the life of Abraham this, uh, this year. Um, we'll be uh, just a couple more chapters before we'll take a break. We'll get to chapter 25, and that will be the end of Abraham's journey, and I look forward to exploring other truths uh, this year. But here we are in Genesis chapter 22, and we're going to begin in verse 15 and go all the way through the end of chapter 23 today. You'll be helped, as you are every week, to have God's Word open today. And so if you want to use a pew Bible, you can find that on page 16. Page 16. Genesis chapter 22, beginning in verse 15. Hear now the Word of God. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. And they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Booz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Didlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Maacah. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, and all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Ephron listened, Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham 
weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was in the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Our Father, we are thankful for your word that we can now consider and set our hearts upon. We trust that you have much to teach us this morning. We believe and confess once again that we that all of Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. And so we now come uh, to perhaps somewhat of an obscure passage in Genesis 23, believing that it to be the very Word of God. And so, as Samuel said long ago, and as we say often, speak, Lord, your servants are listening. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was in the 17th century when India was ruled by Muslim emperors named uh, the Mughals. The fifth Mughal was Emperor Shah Jahan, who happened to marry a beautiful woman named Mumtaz Mahal. He loved his bride very deeply. Uh, Mahal was, was his inseparable companion. She was a counselor to him. She inspired Shah Jahan to great acts of kindness. It sadly, his beloved died in childbirth in the year 1630, only three years after Shah Jahan rose to his throne. He was so overpowered by grief that, that Shah Jahan decided he would perpetuate the memory of his beloved, and so he built for his wife the finest tomb that he could possibly build as a monument to his eternal love to her. And so for the next 23 years... 20,000 workmen and craftsmen from Europe and Asia worked on this tomb. It was completed in 1653. It is a fusion of Muslim and Hindu architecture. There are four minarets. There's a massive reflecting pool. It's all made of white marble that was taken from a quarry 250 miles away. It glistens brilliantly in the sun. When you enter into this mausoleum, the walls are engraved with every precious stone. There, in fact, there's a flower that's about one square inch in, in lined in the wall there. It's, uh, it's made of 60 different precious stones. And you could rub your finger over it, and it's as smooth as glass. Such was the craftsmanship for this tomb. Of course, we call it now the Taj Mahal. And it is visited by over 2 million people every year, built by one man who loved his woman, and he wanted the world to know it. 20 miles south of Jerusalem, there's a cave where a beloved wife was buried by a grieving husband. Like the Taj Mahal, it stands as a lasting testimony to this man's love for his bride of perhaps over 100 years. It's not adorned, however. 
There's nothing physically attractive about this cave, but it does testify to his love for her. But not just his love. What's more spectacular is that it testifies to his faith in God. Abraham had faith in God that the land in which he buried his wife would one day be their possession. In fact, I think this whole passage before us really stands as a resounding conviction that God's promises are not exhausted in this life. So if we were to have a theme for our message this morning, that would be it. Listen, remember, hope, that God's promises are not exhausted in this life. Sarah dies before all of God's promises for her had come to pass. Not, listen, not everything in this life gets worked out. Not every problem gets solved. Not every blessing is poured out. It is not for this life only that we trust in God. For every believer, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. That's our hope. And we are called by God to live today in light of that hope. In fact, that's what I would charge us this morning in light of the scripture in front of us, that we are to live in hope. I would identify four hopes here in this passage that we should live in light of. The first being that we should hope in God's word. Hope in God's word. Now, you notice, of course, we're picking up kind of right in the middle of a story. uh, and, And the story was, we saw last week, God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac Abraham agrees, he goes up to the Mount Moriah, and he's about to sacrifice his son only for God to stop him. God then provides a ram as a substitute for Isaac, and God speaks to him. The angel of the Lord, who we've identified as as God himself, perhaps the pre-incarnate second person of the triune God, whom we call Jesus, has come now to speak to Abraham. This will be the eighth and final time that God would speak to Abraham, as at least recorded in Scripture. And you'll notice that this this conversation that they have, there's a tone of commendation. It's almost like Old Testament for well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And amidst this praise, God goes on to reiterate these promises that we've already heard. We heard them in Genesis 12. We heard them in Genesis 13. We heard them in Genesis 15. We heard them in Genesis 17. We heard them again in Genesis 18. And now in Genesis 22, we hear them once again. Abraham hears them once again. And I trust they were no less sweet and precious to Abraham to hear once again for God's intent to bless him. You notice that in verse 15, the angel Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies." And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. You notice here, before God gets on to list out the blessings, he he takes an oath. God swears an oath. There in verse 16, you notice he swears by himself, which I find somewhat amusing. It's almost as if God has been called into court, and they ask him, do you swear to tell the truth? The whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you, you, right? right? So help you, you. Because God, of course, is the highest authority. And so there's no one for God to swear by. 
who can come get him if he doesn't keep his word. So God says, I'm going to swear an oath to you, Abram, and I, I swear by myself. He links his character to the promises that he gives to Abraham. And what more assurance could Abraham want? What more assurance could we want that he swears an oath by himself? And because he does it, we know, of course, that everything that God spoke will come to pass. In fact, this, this little oath is so profound that the author of Hebrew p- picks it up. And in Hebrews chapter 6, we read, When God to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's you, no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. For when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's you, by the way, the unchangeable character of his purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath so that we, that's us, we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. In other words, this passage ought to be not just a great encouragement to Abraham, but to us as well, as the author of Hebrews applies it to us, that God has, has promised, has made great promises to us. God keeps his word. God swears by himself. God keeps every word that he ever says to us. And so Paul, for instance, in Philippians 1, can say to us, I am sure of this. I am confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. You write it down, take it to the bank. What God has started in you, Christian, he will complete it as surely as he has linked it to his very character. You, therefore, in light of the promises of God, have an anchor. In the midst of your turbulent life, in the midst of the uncertainties that tomorrow holds, you have a hope that should tower over all of life. A hope in God's promises. Well, what are the promises that he gives to Abraham? Well, you notice, I mean, we've, we've explored these. We're not going to take time to flesh them out. You could go back and listen to previous messages, but he does, of course, bless offspring. That there's, a, in fact, a blessing through the offspring that we notice there in verse 17. He's going to have many descendants. This is, of course, at least immediately fulfilled in the people we call Israel, or the Bible calls Israel, and that God, you see there, wants to bless, of course, the world through Israel. Please understand that God did not choose Israel uh, instead of the world. God chose Israel for the world. That Israel was to be a blessing to the world. And we see that there very clearly in verse 18. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Of course, Israel was just a foreshadow, wasn't, weren't they, of the Lord Jesus Christ. They pointed to the ultimate blesser, Jesus Christ. In fact, when you read that word there, offspring, in verse 18, maybe your translations put through your seed. Does it not remind us of Genesis 3.15? When God says to Adam and Eve that it is through the seed of the woman, the descendant of the woman, that shall come this hero, a son, who will conquer Satan, sin, and death itself. This is reiterated when God has called Abraham out of Ur in Genesis 12, that Abraham will be blessed by God in order to be a blessing to the nations. And we finally get to the New Testament in the book of Galatians, and we read in chapter 3, verse 15, that Jesus Christ is the offspring of Abraham who will bless the nations of the earth. So this is a messianic promise ultimately there in verse 17 and 18. 
And notice, by the way, this I find particularly fascinating, that these blessings will come upon, upon Abraham. Why? Do you notice why they're coming? Because Abraham obeyed. Do you see that twice there? Look at verse 16. Uh, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this. And not withheld your son, your only son. And then he ends it. Look how he ends it. The end of verse 18. Because you obeyed my voice. So it's because Abraham has obeyed that God will fulfill this blessing. That obedience, of course, is motivated by Abraham's faith. He trusts the Lord and therefore he went out in obedience. But notice that obedience is crucial here. It's because of his obedience that God would use them. And I, I don't know, I can't read those phrases, because you obeyed, all the nations will be blessed, and not, not think of our Lord Jesus Christ. Could, could not if, if God say the same to his son, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed? Because why? You have obeyed. You obeyed even going to the cross. And therefore, through that obedience, because you listen to my voice, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed And that blessing is evident even in this room today, isn't it? And so God offers these great promises to Abraham. They come down the mountain there in verse 19. So Abraham returned to his young men. Remember the servants he left at the base of the mountain. They arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. I think it's just a kind of wonderful end here. uh, Wonderful assurance and praise that's given from God. It, it, It almost sounds like God's praising Abraham, doesn't it? We, we have the great honor of praising God. I mean, that, that, that's something that we all should delight in doing. But how amazing would it be for God to praise you? Right? How amazing would it be for God to say, hey, because you did this, because you did that, and God to note the life you're going to live, and he would praise you. Imagine if God would look into your life and commend you for it. Well, I think he will. In fact, the Lord Jesus says we ought to seek that praise. You know, in John chapter 5, Jesus is criticizing the Pharisees because they're living their life to receive praise from men rather than seeking the praise that comes from the only God. Or you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we read in verse 5, When the Lord comes, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his praise from God. How precious, my brothers and sisters, will it be to be praised by God for a life of faithfulness? Should that not be an added motivation towards obedience and devotion to our God that your Father would see, as Jesus has told us, what we do in secret and one day will reward us for it? We ought to live in hope of the promises of God. Secondly, and quickly, you'll note that there seems to be hope in family. Hope in family. Abraham now, once he returns home, receives news from his family uh, he hasn't heard of in years. He learns that his brother, Nahor, whom he left back in Ur, has 12 sons. And I trust many daughters as well, as you know, verse 20. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Booz, his brother, and by the way, I like, I like to name, uh, you, you understand this, I like to name my children biblical names, right? I don't know if you're like that. Booze is one you want to skip over, okay? okay? <laughs> Ooze is not much better, but definitely not booze. Don't name your son booze. 
but I, I guess, he, I don't know what's going on there, but boo, he's got ooze, and then he's got booze, okay? And then you got Kemuel, the father, excuse me, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Beth. There's not a, not a lot of good names here, so you might want to skip this passage. But there, I think here's, why are, we, why are we learning this? I think it's here, right here, verse 23. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. That's a little ding, ding, ding. Okay. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Maaka. Okay, we, we, if you remember Genesis 22, the line is almost dead. The line of promise. I mean, it, you're at the point where Isaac is bound on this altar. Abraham has the knife lifted high, and the lineage is about to be snuffed out. And God uh, wonderfully saves Isaac, almost to the point where the book of Hebrews says he raised him. It was almost like a resurrection and receives him back. And now we get this little hint. Hey, by the way, Isaac has a wife. He's got a cousin living in uh, Ur, Rebekah. And we're going to see shortly, once we get to Genesis 24, that they, those two will be wed and the family lineage will continue. And so it's right after the near death of Isaac that we now can begin to look forward to a marriage, that this family line will go forth and God will keep his promises. It was touch and go there for a moment, and now we can look forward, right? And so we get this hint, praise God, there's a marriage coming, and we're all filled with joy at that. And so you know, whenever there's good times here in this book, it seems like hard times are right around the corner. And of course it is, as we consider thirdly, that we can hope in grief hope in grief. You see in chapter 23, verse 1, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah, and Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Sarah is now dead. We know her age, 127 years. That's Long life, incredible life, but our enemy found her, and she died. And so in some sense, we now come to the end of Abraham and Sarah. Here in Genesis 23, we find the first funeral in the Bible. First funeral in the Bible is for this matriarch, for Sarah. She was clearly respected. She was honored, wonderful woman of faith. Consider Isaiah's exhortation, who says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn, and the quarry from which you were dug, look to Abraham your father, and to Sarah who bore you. In other words, as Adam and Eve are our physical parents, Abraham and Sarah are very much our spiritual parents, we're cut from the same rock, this rock of faith, we have much to learn from them. We all, we, 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 so we see this even as we've studied her life, how she has grown and matured, right? And as she has followed the Lord, one author, I think, rightly eulogizes her when he says, she too walked by faith, having favor with God and waiting for his salvation, in faith being like-minded with Abraham. She left her early home and her father's house. In faith, she bore him company through the long years of his exile, cheering him amid many troubles and upholding him under many disappointments. Through faith, she receives strength to conceive, and she now stands enthroned, according to the book of Hebrews, among those of whom 
the world was not worthy. Abraham, uh, Sarah was a remarkable woman. Of course, she was not perfect. And we have seen her sin in all their, their uh, um, powerful colors. She was cruel, scheming, deceitful, unbelieving at times. And so we don't want to look over that. We can learn from that as well. We don't want to idealize their marriage, by the way. Although she is given in 1 Peter 3 as an example of a submissive wife. right? But we see, we read their story, and we don't see they got married and they just gazed at each other lovingly to the rest of their days. There was sin in their marriage, like all marriages. Right? Marriages struggle. Theirs did. So will ours. They had a hard life in many ways. Could you imagine that you have to leave home, leave your family, live in a tent for decades in a land that you don't know? That would be hard. you imagine encountering a famine and not sure how you're going to eat? That would be hard. Imagine being barren till you're 90 and you're desperate for children. That was hard. Imagine your husband commits adultery with your servant and has a child out of wedlock with her. That was hard. Imagine your husband gives you away to another man. Not once, but twice. That was hard. There were Hard times in her life, undoubtedly. Unhappy times in their marriage, undoubtedly. And yet, they needed each other. They loved each other. They did not go their separate ways when things became difficult. They grew to trust God together. And as far as we know, for the last 37 years of her life, from age 90 to 127, it seems to be this uneventful pursuit of God and godliness. And therefore, we come to our last day. And in many ways, it's a good day. Because her husband loves her. That's why we read in verse 2, Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. My friends, what if your spouse died today? What if your spouse died today? Is there anything left unsaid? Is there anything left undone in your marriage? So many marriages struggle with bitterness, unforgiveness, a need for repentance. Many marriages have anger within them. Please understand, I tell you with love in my heart, you are wasting your marriage. And you cannot get those days back. And that I think this is just kind of a, a reminder that we should be urgent to fix our marriages, to get help, to repent of sin, to have a vision for what our marriage is to be. So, because, listen, there's coming a day, one day, you're gonna, one of you is going to bury the other. And you don't want to take these days for granted. In fact, Ecclesiastes 9 says, Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garment be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life. Make the most of the days you have. There are not many of them. You see this in Abraham. He's got tears in his eyes as he buries his beloved. He's crying because he's thinking of all the good times he's had with her. He, all the partner that she has been in plenty and want and sickness and health, right? And joy and sorrow. What memories must he thought of Sarah as he 
put her in this tomb. I remember, I think, about my own marriage with my wife. I met Allegra in high school. Neither of us were Christian. She was a, she was a cheerleader, and I was a stoner. Um, I had hair down my back, wore a leather jacket. I was a creepy, sinful guy. And, and I remember our first day is May 16th, 1995. Legger didn't know it was a date. 1992, thank you. Um, it's good. <laughs> Just want to see if you, can, you remembered. Right? We go to the, we're living in Southern California. We go to the Renaissance Fair. I drive her and her two friends. Uh, they, they were going without me, but the person that can drive them bailed on them, and I could drive. And so they said, call Stephen. He likes you. And so, uh, against her wishes, they did, and uh, I knew that she hadn't, wasn't interested in me, but I'm persistent. Um, and so, we got there, Renaissance Fair, we walked through the gate, and within minutes, her two friends run off, leaving a lager there with me, and she looks at me, and I got this creepy smile, and I'm thinking, this is wonderful, and she's thinking, someone please help me. Right? And listen, the rest is history. You just, you just wear them down, all right? And... Uh, and by God's grace, he got a hold of our lives. And he, he turned us, right, from, the, from where we were going. He's been so good to us. I'm thankful for his grace. I'm thankful that God has given me someone that understands me. I'm, and that, that laughs at my jokes, right? And I'm, I'm afraid that she doesn't care that she's the only one laughing, right? And God's been good to me. And God's been good to so many of you. But it doesn't mean our marriage is perfect. And there's been hard days in our marriage. There's been hard years in our marriage, looking at 22 years um, this summer. But there's grace, isn't there? And there's forgiveness. And I don't know how many more days I have. You don't know how many more days you have. That's not in your control. But what is in your control is that your spouse is loved well for the days in which God gives you. Right? That your wives are cherished and honored as Scripture instructs us. Because I don't want to come to the end and I don't want to say we didn't talk enough, we didn't date enough, we didn't laugh enough, we didn't serve enough. I want to come to the end and be thankful and say goodbye thinking we lived this life well. This was a God-honoring marriage. Don't you want that? Don't let these days just skirt by. Invest in one another. As God would instruct us. And here Abraham, he's burying his wife and he's, he's crying over her. Should Christians cry at funerals? Yes. I don't know how many times I've heard that's a lack of faith. And I'm telling you, it's just nonsense. You think Abraham had faith? He's a man of faith. Right? And yet he mourns and he weeps. Why? Because death is our enemy. And to weep for someone who dies is to show you love them. It's show the pain of the loss. It's to show that death is your foe. And yet, even though we cry and grieve, we grieve as Pastor Josh reminded us from 1 Thessalonians 4, that we do so with hope, right? Because more is promised to us from God than what we receive in this life. The best is yet to come. So we bury our loved ones in hope and we show that we trust God even in death and that we have hope for the future. Hope for the future. The last hope that we see 
in this passage. You notice most of this chapter 23 is to arrange Sarah's burial, is the purchase of a cave, is to get ready for a funeral. Right? In our culture, you know, the, the, the big day for us is the wedding day, right? And, and the, the brides, they dress like a princess. They don't eat for two months, right? And uh, they, they are looking, you know, as they'll never look that beautiful again. That's the peak right there on that wedding day, right? And people just see them and they pass out because they're so gorgeous. And the guys are wearing cologne. And so they'll never smell that good again, right? And it's a big day, right? And we, we celebrate the wedding day. That's an important day. We get a cake. We got some, you know, flowers. We take pictures for half the day. It's a good day. But, but when it comes to burying the other, well, that's an important day, too. The funeral's an important day, too. And we ignore it, right? We don't, we don't have any, like, pick-out coffin reality shows, do we? Right? We don't have, like, the top ten tips on burying your spouse, I mean, we just, we just, we don't even want to think about it until we're forced to think about it. But can I tell you, as someone who does, conducts funerals professionally, that funerals are important. It, 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 and if you have made it together for 40 years, if you're bearing a spouse, 50 years, 60 years, and you still love each other at the end, that's rare, Right? You've created a family, you've left a legacy, right? And you've come to that day, that's an important day in your life. It was clearly important to Abraham, and he wanted to bury his wife well, as you see in verse 3. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you, give me the property among, uh, give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. He notice he doesn't want to bring Sarah back to his homeland. He wants to bury her in the land of promise. Because against all appearances, even in death, Abraham believes, okay, this is our land. I know it's occupied by these people called the Hittites and all the rest, but God's one day is going to give it to us. And so he begins saying, will you sell me a burial plot? I want to honor my wife. I want a beautiful place to bury my wife so her son and her grandchildren can come by in this beautiful place, remember their mama, remember their grandma. And so he says, I need a place to bury her. And and so he asked the Hittites. They respond in verse 5. The Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. So the Hittites are the dominant group in Canaan. They pay him a compliment. So you're a really good guy. God's blessing you. Take whatever you want. Just take whatever you want. Now, I don't know if they're posturing. I don't know if it's a negotiating strategy or if this is sincere. But he doesn't want a gift. Right? He says, I want to buy it. As you see in verse 7. He's got something picked out already. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat me, uh, entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as a property for a burying place. And so he, he, he says, I don't, I don't want you to give it to me. I want to pay for it. It reminds me of Genesis 14. Remember when the king of Sodom, wanted to, they want to split the spoils. And he says, no, you take everything. I don't even want a shoelace from you. I don't want to be in your debt. God's going to take care of me. I don't need anything from you. And so once again, he's saying, I don't need uh, you to give me something, but let me pay for it. 
Well, Ephron happens to be there, as you see in verse 10. Now, Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of the city. No, Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. And so he says, let me just give it to you. Now, I think at this point, we're clearly, this is just some kind of negotiating strategy. We'll show you that in a moment. Notice he throws in a field, right? Abraham doesn't need a field. He needs a cave. Um, is he just being a nice guy? Take the field as well? I don't think so. I think he realizes Abraham's desperate, right? And if you want a cave, well, the cave comes with a field. And uh, this guy clearly needs to bury his dead quickly. This is an opportunity for Ephron to make some money. Not everyone who will see your tragedy in your life is a time to help you. Some will see it as a time to gain for themselves. So Abraham reiterates that he will pay for it, verse 12. And then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Okay? He says, uh, I'm going to pay for it. So Ephraim, they begin to negotiate the price. Ephraim gives his starting price, which is crazy high. There in verse 14, Ephraim answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Now, a shekel is a measure of weight. At this time, we had not invented coinage. And so this is, this is a weight, 400 shekels is about six pounds of silver. Now I say this is a crazy high price because we get to 2 Samuel, a thousand years later or so, David buys the field for the temple and he pays 50 shekels for it. Okay? So now this four, 400 shekels is a lot of money. So what does Abraham do? Well, look in verse 16. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. He doesn't negotiate at all. He immediately accepts the prize, perhaps thinking, I'm an extremely rich man. I love that woman. I'm going to honor her. I'm not going to be cheap. Right? Sometimes you honor your loved one by not being cheap. And, and so he has, he enters in this transaction, has everyone witness it, all the terms, all the payment are made in front of everybody, there's no confusion going forward, who owns the land, and then finally they have the funeral there in verse 19, after this Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, the field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. So there's the funeral. We don't get much details. Perhaps Abraham got up and he, he spoke of Sarah, right? Shared some memories, maybe, like we do. And he buries her. Buries her. Notice, I say with gentleness in my heart, he does not spread her ashes. He buries her body. Now, there is no command in the Bible against cremation. But please understand, we only see burials in the Bible. And burial is clear, this clearly means something to Abraham. The physical burial of Sarah's body. I'm usually asked about cremation once or twice a year. And I do not think cremation is sinful. 
And there may be many reasons for someone to be cremated. And I'm not in any way trying to make anyone feel bad about choices they've already made. But I think it's helpful to note that both in the old, under the Old Covenant and under the New Covenant, burial of a body was always seen as an honor. And it is a reminder of two things. One, the goodness of the body and the hope of the resurrection. I think symbolism's important. Cremation, I will tell you, is historically pagan. And that the only time we see cremation in the Bible are for those who have committed a capital crime. They are executed. And because their crime is so heinous, their bodies are burned. They are not given the honor of a burial. Their bodies are burned to show God's disfavor. I will also tell you that cremation was never practiced by any Christian until about 150 years ago. I say all that because I think it's important to think deeply about these things. And quite often we're confronted with funerals and we don't have time to think deeply. So prepare and don't make snap decisions as you decide what's best for your family. And so Abraham here buries his wife in land that he now owns. Look there in verse 17. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout the whole area was made over to Abraham as possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. So he, he, he buries his wife in this cave, and I want you to understand that this is Abraham acting in faith in God's promises. He now owns, finally, part of the promised land. He doesn't have it all. There are thousands of people living there. But he plants his flag. He says, I believe that this land one day will be ours as God has told us. Very similar to Jeremiah, who's prophesying at the time when the walled city of Jerusalem is besieged by Nebuchadnezzar's army. Right? They're building siege mounds high. The walls are crumbling. And a cousin comes to Jeremiah and he says, hey, would you like to buy my field? Now, when your town is besieged by a marauding army, that's what we call um, a, a buyer's market. Right? There's a lot of inventory right? and not a lot of people looking to buy. And so he says, will you want to buy this property? Abraham buys it. Why? He's got an army outside. Because God has told him, in 70 years, you're going to need that deed. Your people are going to need that deed because you are coming back. And so in faith, he buys that piece of property, takes the deed, puts it in a safe place for his descendants one day to have. Something very similar is happening here. Abraham says, I want a piece of the promised land. Even though it looks ridiculous that my people will one day inherit it, I believe they will. This cave became very important. You know, uh, when Abraham dies, you know where he's buried? That cave. When, when Rebecca, his daughter-in-law, dies, you know where she's buried? In that cave. When, when Jacob marries Leah and she's buried, you know where she's buried? In that cave. When Jacob, his grandson, moves down to Egypt with all of his descendants and he's at his deathbed, what is Jacob's dying request to his gathered 12 sons around him? It is an emphatic command. Do not leave my remains in this land, but take it back 
to Grandpa Abraham's burial site, right? Don't leave me here. Take me back to the promised land. So in Genesis 50, we read, Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. His sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave at the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. To bury his remains there was to testify to their faith in the promise of God. John Calvin writes, While they themselves were silent, the sepulcher cried aloud that death formed no obstacle to their possession of the land. You see, they buried in the hope of a future, a future resurrection. In fact, notice what Abraham says there when he begins his negotiation back in verse 4. I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. It seems like those are words that his descendants will remember. In the book of Leviticus, God says, The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine. You are strangers and sojourners. When David offered his prayer to dedicate the temple materials, he prayed, Even though they own the land at this time, we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. This faith, this belief that this is just a land of our sojourning is carried through the people of God until we get to the book of Hebrews and the Bible tells us all these people were still living in faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were strangers and exiles on earth for they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, what was true for them is true for us. We too, no matter how much land you might own, are strangers and sojourners here. This is our place of passing through. There is a city being prepared for us by our Lord Jesus. And you ought to take heart in that. You ought to have hope in that, that in this world there will be sorrow and there will be joy. There will be hardship and there will be laughter. But let us not forget that we press on to another land, a promised land. Where is Sarah today? Where would you find her? Where will you be one day? Where will you be when there's no journey left to take? There's no no commands left to obey. Are you going to a better country? Are you going to a city made by our Lord? You know, you could still visit this tomb. It's identified. It's a Muslim shrine uh, where uh, Muslim people honor who they consider to be a father of their faith, uh, Father Abraham. Many people go there every year. Many, many pilgrims by the hundreds of thousands. But typically Christians don't. Our faith is not centered on that tomb. Our focus is on a different tomb, isn't it? And as we discovered last week, and Cody already reminded us this morning, it's empty. In fact, we don't even know where the tomb of Jesus is. No one knows where Jesus was buried because his tomb was never enshrined. No one went there to mourn. 
right? No one went there to pay their respects. No one went there to lay flowers and light candles and there to weep. Why? Because he is not there. He is alive, right? And that is our hope, that there is hope for a future even passing through death, that if we die in Christ, we will rise like Christ and live in that better country with Abraham and Sarah and all the rest in the presence of our Lord. For our Lord has paid our penalty. Our Lord has bared our burden. Our Lord has taken the sin that you and I have committed this very day and shall for the remainder of our days upon himself and took the wrath of God that you might be forgiven. And then rising from the dead, he is the firstborn among the resurrected. And one day, my friends, we are going to get to the end of our life, and it's at that point, because of our faith in Jesus, that we will come to the true land of promise. You know, this Genesis 23 is the first mention in the Bible of tears, of weeping. You get to the end of this book, it also talks about tears. In fact, when God is describing this better city, this better country, we are told in that place, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know why? Because death will be gone. Sin will be gone. The curse will be gone forever. And I'm going to be there because of Jesus. Are you? Have you yielded your life to Christ in faith? Will you be there? You know, sometimes we sing a hymn. When the blessed who sleep in Jesus at his biding shall arise. From the silence of the grave and from the sea. And with bodies all celestial they shall meet him in the skies. What a gathering and rejoicing that will be. What a gathering, what a gathering, what a gathering of the ransomed in the summer land of love. What a gathering, what a gathering, what a gathering of the ransomed in that happy home above. Our Father, we are thankful that we have great hope today. We have hope in your word and the promises it gives We have hope even in times of grief for the believer, for we ultimately have hope in our future. We hope in that future is not based upon wishful thinking, but based upon the meticulous obedience and love of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has paid for our sins and rose from the dead. And we even come now to this table to remember and rejoice in the sacrifice he paid for us. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.